Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Democrat lawmakers planning a busy session with a long to-do list while they still control both chambers. And senators weigh in on the election results. Governor Greg Abbott is calling for an investigation into how one Texas county ran its election. Find out more about the problems that warranted an audit from the Secretary of State. President Biden is turning 80 this week. We hear from voters and lawmakers what they think about his age. And top-ranked conservative governors easily won re-election. We explore with an expert why that is and if more liberal-leaning governors won by similar margins. Lawmakers are weighing in on what they think the midterms will mean for the next Congress. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he thinks we'll see more bipartisanship. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Senator Chuck Schumer says he thinks the midterms will force Republicans to work more with Democrats after they opposed many Democrat priorities. CNN's Don Lemon asked Schumer why he thinks it'll be different this time. It's different this time because they lost. They all expected to win. The red wave proved to be a red mirage. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has a different take. On Monday, McConnell said although Democrats will keep the Senate, Republicans will likely take back the House, and that would put a stop to Democrats' one-party government. Senate Republicans have spent two years working to check and balance reckless policies. It would be an outstanding thing for the country to have a new, to have a set of new reinforcements arriving on the other side. But Republican Senator Josh Hawley is less optimistic. I think that this election was the funeral for the Republican Party as we know it. The Republican Party, is, as we have known it, is dead. And voters have made that clear. Senator Hawley said the people who did not vote Republican were working class independent voters. He said they voted for President Obama at one time and then voted for President Trump, but stayed home this time. We are not a majority party unless we can appeal to those voters. Meanwhile, Democrat lawmakers have a big to-do list for the rest of the year. They're looking to make the most of their current thin majorities in both chambers before the new Congress is sworn in on January 3rd, a period known as the lame duck session. The goals are high. Democrats aim to pass bills protecting same-sex marriage, clarifying lawmakers' roles in certifying presidential elections, and raising the nation's debt ceiling. They also want to pass legislation fast-tracking permits for energy projects and provide more financial and military assistance to Ukraine. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Next, let's take a quick look at the balance of power in Congress. Republicans are now one seat away from a majority in the House with 13 contests left to be called. Projections show Republicans gaining three seats late last night. Democrats are projected to keep a majority in the Senate with wins in Arizona and Nevada. President Biden on Monday said it's likely the GOP will take control of the House and that Democrats lack the votes needed to codify abortion access into law. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is calling for an investigation into how Harris County runs its elections. Abbott cited problems and delays with the voting system. That includes not having enough paper ballots in GOP precincts, missing keys, and staffing problems. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Abbott put out a statement Monday calling on the Secretary of State, the Attorney General's office, and the Texas Rangers to investigate allegations of improprieties in the elections of Harris County this year. Abbott says the allegations range from malfeasance to blatant criminal conduct. The Harris County GOP announced a lawsuit against local election officials on Monday. We're doing this in order to shed light on what has been happening, how Harris County actually runs their elections. Harris County GOP Chair Cindy Siegel claims it's a systemic issue with how county officials run elections. You know, what we've seen over the past year, um, instead of it just being a few incidences of breakdown and how the process has been run, we've seen what's turned out to be a systemic cancer in how Harris County actually runs its elections. Siegel says it's essential individuals are confident in the voting system and that it's not a partisan issue. Those Republican polls where we were running out of paper, I am sure that there are independents and Democrats that were trying to vote there too that didn't get to vote. Harris County Elections Administrator Clifford Tatum says his office is fully committed to transparency regarding the processes and procedures it implemented for this year's midterms. 
The Texas Secretary of State's office will audit Harris County's midterm results along with three other Texas counties. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A county in Minnesota will be removing duplicate names from its voter roll. This comes after a lawsuit from the Public Interest Legal Foundation and Election Watchdog Group. Todd County reached a settlement with the foundation and agreed to remove 22 duplicate voter registrations currently on the rolls. Minnesota is one of six states that are exempt from the 1993 National Voter Registration Act. This is a law that sets out requirements for how election officials register voters and maintain voter rolls. The watchdog group's legal victory is the first time such a state has been successfully sued to force a cleanup of voter rolls. Representative Rudy Yakim was sworn in to fill the seat in Indiana's 2nd U.S. House District. He will serve the remaining term of the late Representative Jackie Walorski. Yakim secured 64% of the vote in the elections, beating challengers Democrat Paul Storey and Libertarian William Henry. He also won the regular election and will begin his full term in the 118th Congress starting January 3rd. Yakim has focused his campaign on fighting soaring inflation, creating more jobs, and lowering gasoline prices. He also vows to, quote, save America from the Pelosi-Biden's failed agenda. At a Monday ceremony, Yakim praised the late Congresswoman Wolorski and pledged to work hard as he steps into her shoes. Wolorski died in a car accident in August. Next, we get some analysis on the midterm elections for governor. Candidates who were ranked most conservative easily won re-election, despite the GOP's overall performance being less than Republicans expected. Joining us now is Lee Schalk, the Vice President of Policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. Thank you for your time today, Lee. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Conservative governors, per an analysis by ALEC, won re-election by 7 to 40-point margins. So can you explain exactly why you think this is the case? The constituents of these governors really, I think, appreciated not only the pandemic response, but also the approach to policies like maintaining lower taxes, worker freedom. A lot of these states, of course, are right-to-work states, but they also believe in empowering parents to make the best decisions for their students. But looking at the pandemic response, I think is so important because by not locking down their economies, they allowed businesses to flourish. They allowed families and, and parents to continue to go to work and earn a paycheck and not have their lives ruined or interrupted by government regulations. So we've seen these top conservative governors get a major victory in the midterms, but what about more liberal-minded governors like Gavin Newsom, for example? Well, Gavin Newsom was one of the worst-rated governors in America, according to our report. But we saw in California hundreds of thousands of people fled the state in search of greener pastures and better economic opportunity, especially during the pandemic. I think that uh, a lot of those voters ultimately voted for Republican governors in the midterms, can you explain a little bit more about these constituents migrating and going to other states that, that have leadership that aligns more with their values? Of course. Well, if you look at the latest Census Bureau data, particularly from the height of the pandemic, if you look at California or New York or New Jersey, we saw hundreds of thousands of people pack up and move. And this is a trend that's been going on for years now. California and the latest congressional reapportionment lost a congressional seat for the first time in its state history since the 1800s. But this was really, I think, exacerbated during the pandemic when hundreds of thousands of people moved to states that have lower taxes, in many cases, states that don't even impose a tax on income. There are nine states nationwide like that, many of which have governors like Kristi Noem in South Dakota, Ron DeSantis in Florida, Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, who easily won re-election this year. Tell us a little bit more about Christy Noem and her policies and how that helped her gain re-election. Yeah, Christy Noem, I think, has become one of America's governors just based on her response to the pandemic, but also her approach to maintaining that low-tax environment for businesses and families. I think she's really bragged about that for South Dakota and made sure that that's part of the state's brand. You know, people don't move to South Dakota for the weather. It's freezing in South Dakota in the winter, but they are moving there because of economic opportunities. So while states like California are shrinking in terms of population, even South Dakota is growing. 
And a lot of that is due to governors like Kristi Noem. And Lee, as a side note, we've seen Democrats maintain control of the Senate in these statewide elections, but on these more local elections, like for districts, for example, for U.S. Congressmen and women, we've seen a little bit more of a red trickle. Can you explain why this is? Well, I think there are a lot of factors here to unpack. Of course, we've talked a little bit about governors earning re-election. A lot of that is because they've built up the trust of their constituents. They're a familiar face. People understand them and their policies. But you also had a lot of newcomers running for the U.S. Senate, for example, who were new to voters. Uh, folks were trying to understand exactly what their platforms were, their policies. And, you know, I think for people who are in favor of more free market, limited government policies, there were some disappointing results. But it does look like the, the Republicans could gain control of the House with the way things are going. And you will, we will end up with that split, uh, split Congress in terms of the Senate favoring Democrats and the Republicans having control of the U.S. House. Lee Schalk, Vice President of Policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council, thank you so much for making the time today. Thanks for having me. President Biden's 80th birthday is coming up, which has some asking, might he be too old to run in 2024? We hear from Americans about what they think. President Biden is turning 80 this Sunday. If he runs and wins in 2024, he would be 86 by the time his second term ends. Similarly, Donald Trump would be 82 when he leaves office if he runs and wins the 2024 race. A Reuters Ipsos poll from last week found that 86% of Americans said they believe that the age limit for serving as president should be 75 or younger. I will support the Democratic Party, but yes, 80 is getting up there and it is old and, you know, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's, you know, a little bit worrisome. It is a little bit worrisome. He's a very, very sweet, competent man. But it's time. An elderly lady in Washington, D.C. indicates that more people of age should recognize younger people's abilities. My son um, just turned 60. And I look and I have a grandson that's 30. And I look at their wisdom and how smart they are. And I think it's time that so many of our people in political office and even in the private sector step down. 68 percent of people surveyed in the Reuters Ipsos poll said they think Biden may not be up for the challenge two years from now. 49 percent say the same about Trump. Last week, Biden said the intention is to run again in 2024, but he hasn't made the official call yet. And my guess is it'd be early next year we make that judgment. But it is my plan to do it now. I mean, but Senator Chuck Schumer was asked about a possible Biden run. Does the outcome of what happened in the midterm elections strongly signify that Biden should run for re-election? Look, he'll make that decision himself. What do you if, think? He run, if he runs, I'll support him. Other Democrats say people shouldn't focus so much on Biden's age. The Washington Post reports that Senator Murphy said Republicans should be congratulated for continuing to raise an issue that I think has no grounding in reality, but may have political advantage for Republicans. Representative Jan Schakowsky commented to Fox News about the issue. She defended Biden's cognition by comparing him to former President Trump, who she said lied to the American people again and again and once threw food against the wall. NTD reached out to the White House for comment but didn't hear back before broadcast. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani will not face criminal charges. Prosecutors declined to move forward following a raid on his home in New York City last year. Giuliani's home was raided by the FBI during an investigation into whether he illegally lobbied on behalf of Ukrainian officials. Prosecutors allege that he didn't register with the DOJ for representing a Ukrainian national or office while working for then-President Trump. Speaking to Fox News last year, Giuliani said, quote, I never represented a Ukrainian national or official before the United States government. I've declined it several times. In Monday's court filing, prosecutors in New York decided not to pursue criminal charges against Giuliani after they reviewed the materials taken from his residence. The former mayor took to Twitter to celebrate the court's decision, which he called complete and total vindication. Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel plans to run for re-election. McDaniel told Republican members her plans during a conference call yesterday. She said she'd run if the members want her to, and that many have told her they do. 
Some within the GOP call for fresh leadership after the midterms, but McDaniel's supporters say she can bring the party stability through the 2024 presidential election. McDaniel has served as chair since 2017 when former President Trump took office. The two have worked together over the past five years. And coming up, the federal government's war on drugs. New prosecutions reveal corruption within the Drug Enforcement Agency. We have that and more just after this break. Air carriers have refunded more than $600 million to hundreds of thousands of passengers for canceled or changed flights since the start of the pandemic. The Transportation Department announced the news Monday. It comes as federal regulators crack down on a half dozen airlines. They say skirted rules which determine when refunds are issued. The department is also issuing over $7 million in fines against the six airlines for extreme delays in providing refunds to passengers. That brings the total assessed fines for this year to over $8 million, a record in civil penalties for the department's consumer protection program. Most of the fines went to foreign-based airlines. Frontier was the only U.S. carrier to be fined in relation to refunds. Meanwhile, airlines are still struggling to keep up with a rapid rise in demand for air travel. And the chances of a railroad strike have gone up after a third rail union rejected a tentative labor deal. Rank-and-file members of a union called the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers voted against a tentative agreement reached in September. The IBB said it expects to continue negotiating toward a satisfactory contract with railroad management. The union, which represents around 300 workers, is the smallest of 13 unions representing more than 100,000 members at major U.S. freight railroads. If any of those unions strike, its picket lines would be honored by the other unions. That could happen early next month, and it would shut down a vital link in the nation's supply chain. Congress could prevent or end a strike by extending a cooling-off period during which the unions cannot strike or by imposing a contract on union members. Sticking points in negotiations have been things like staffing levels and paid sick time. And in other news, Google has reached a record $392 million settlement with 40 states over its location tracking practices. The search giant allegedly misled consumers over those practices. That included confusion around, quote, the scope of the location history setting and how much consumers could limit the location tracking by adjusting settings. The coalition of attorneys general that announced the settlement described it as the largest multi-state privacy settlement in U.S. history. The group of AGs claimed Google had been misleading users about location tracking since 2014. As part of the settlement, Google has to be more transparent. That includes showing more information when a location-related setting is turned on or off and making key location tracking policies clearly visible. The company will also now face limits on its usage and storage of some location information. And the Supreme Court declines a case from a tuna company called Starkist. The company was fined $100 million in 2019 for fixing the price of tuna in the U.S. from 2011 to 2013. Starkist is based in Virginia and owned by South Korea's Dongwon Industries. It pleaded guilty to price fixing when several individuals, as well as grocery chains, restaurants, and caterers, sued. But now its lawyers argue that many of the consumers in the lawsuit didn't experience actual harm. The Supreme Court denied Starkist's petition to an unsigned order. And for decades, the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, has been fighting the so-called war on drugs. But recent prosecutions and testimonies show that some DEA agents have been laundering money on behalf of drug cartels. Here's more. Jose Irizarry is a former DEA agent who pleaded guilty in September 2020 to 19 criminal counts, including bank fraud and diverting millions in drug proceeds. However, he says he was not acting alone. The only way we can do our job is to have informants, and uh, the only good informants are the ones that play both sides, and we all know this. Bonnie Clapper is a former federal prosecutor who specializes in criminal defense. She is not involved in this case, but she says the system allowed this to happen. You launder 100000 and you can figure out who dropped off the money. You work that person higher up into the organization. You find out who the traffickers are. You do bank subpoenas. You find out where the money is going. So the goal was to generate targets, seizures, and prosecutions. 
Irizarry says he and his former colleagues used the money they laundered to pay for overseas trips and luxury items. He has implicated a list of former colleagues in Miami, and the Justice Department has recently begun questioning as many as two dozen current and former agents and prosecutors. And we knew the game. We knew DEA is about stats, so our cases brought them stats, um, offered commission funds, so that means it doesn't, didn't cost the agency any funding because we were self-funded, and it got very good press. Uh, because they had the stats. So we had everything that the, everybody was happy all, all, all the way around. Clapper worked on such pickup operations with other agencies during her time at the DOJ. And she says she knows how the system is supposed to work. Those agents were meticulous. We would consult before every pickup and we had goals. It, for every dollar we laundered, we had a seize two. If not, we shut the operation down. In a statement, the DEA said, quote, over the past 16 months, DEA has worked vigorously to further strengthen our discipline and hiring policies to ensure the integrity and effectiveness of our essential work. Electric bikes are increasingly popular in cities, but with them comes a new danger, fire. Here's the New York City Fire Department and City Council talking about e-bike battery fires. Our challenge is to strike the appropriate balance of ensuring public safety while not necessarily disrupting the livelihood and the enjoyment of others. As use has increased, the fire department has seen a corresponding spike in the number of fires and incidents related to lithium-ion batteries. We do need the federal government to step up because these batteries are coming in from China, to be very honest with you, and we need the folks at customs or whatever is appropriate to make sure that the batteries that do arrive from either U.S. or overseas are the ones that are safe for all workers. The fire department says there have been more injuries, deaths, and overall fires involving lithium-ion batteries recently. In fact, there were as many this year as there were in the previous three years combined. Just last week, a fire caused by an electric bike in a Manhattan apartment building injured over three dozen people. It's brought the issue to the forefront. The fire was sparked by an e-bike charging in the hallway. Axios reports that New York City has experienced 200 lithium-ion battery fires so far this year, and six people have died. Now, proposed legislation is aimed at both educating e-bike users of the dangers, as well as looking at ways to make sure the batteries are safe. A once luxurious Miami Beach hotel has been imploded. It hosted the Beatles and President John F. Kennedy during its 1960s heyday. The 17-story Duville Hotel fell into itself Sunday after a series of explosions were set off, sending up a large cloud of dust. The hotel was built in 1957, and Kennedy spoke there to the Young Democrats Convention in 1961. The Beatles performed there in 1964, recording six songs for The Ed Sullivan Show. The property fell into disrepair over the years and was closed in 2017 after an electrical fire. The property's future is unclear after voters rejected plans for a high-rise hotel and condo tower. Coming up, Biden raising alarms about Chinese military activities in a Cambodian base. Why is the issue getting attention from the world's biggest powers? We'll take a deep dive. Armed vehicles patrolling the streets, residents beaten and tased, citizens searching for food and suicide. As COVID numbers continue to rise in China, strict measures spark anger. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. President Biden is raising alarms about Chinese military activities in a Cambodian base. Why is the issue getting attention from the world's biggest powers? NTD's Ellie Hart has more on that. A friendly gesture to a neighboring country or a new foothold for the Chinese military near the South China Sea. Debate over a controversial military base is heating up. China says it's helping Cambodia upgrade a naval facility called the Rhine Naval Base. Beijing calls the assistant part of normal aid, but without directly naming the U.S., a Chinese regime spokesperson said. I hope that extraterritorial countries will view the normal interaction and cooperation between China and Cambodia correctly. 
the China-Cambodian cooperation is raising concerns in Washington. Just two days ago, President Biden singled out the military base in talks with Cambodia. He urged a South Asian country to be transparent about Chinese military activities there. The comment follows reports that the base is building a facility exclusively for Chinese military use. Here's Cambodia's response to the concerns. Its defense minister said even though China funded the upgrade, it's for the benefit of Cambodia's national defense. Why is this military base getting attention from the world's top powers? It occupies a prime location. The base is close to one of the globe's most important shipping lanes, called the Strait of Malacca. It's the shortest sea route linking the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. Almost a quarter of global trade passes through the strait, and a quarter of all oil transported by sea also travels through it. China, Japan, and South Korea also rely on the strait for most of their oil. If Beijing can take control of the Cambodian base, it would gain a foothold near the strategically important South China Sea. The base would also serve as Beijing's second overseas military outpost, and that would bring Beijing one step closer towards its goal of creating a global network of military facilities. Beijing is considering a number of countries for such facilities, and Cambodia is on the list. That's according to a report from the Pentagon. Right now, China has the world's largest navy, but unlike the U.S., it doesn't have a global network of military bases to project power. That said, the regime has started working on it and has already set up its first overseas military base in Djibouti, Africa. Djibouti is located near the strategic entrance to the Red Sea. The U.S. and other Western countries also run military facilities there. Back to the Rim military base in Cambodia. A shift in its use shows a split in Cambodia's relations with the U.S. and how it has grown closer to Beijing. This site used to be where Cambodia conducted military drills with the U.S. But the South Asian country halted that cooperation in 2017. Months after doing drills with China, two years later, a Wall Street Journal report said China struck a secret agreement with Cambodia. Under it, the Chinese army could have exclusive use of parts of a Cambodian Navy base. In 2021, Cambodia demolished two U.S.-funded facilities on the Rim Naval Base. That's after turning down America's offer to pay for renovations. Beijing has become Cambodia's biggest trading partner, and just last week, China announced a large aid package for the country, totaling over $27 million. Canadian police arrested a public employee on suspicion of espionage on Monday. He was working for a major power company with clean energy. Yuasheng Wang faces charges of selling trade secrets to China. While employed by Hydro-Quebec, Mr. Wang allegedly used this position to conduct research for a Chinese university and other Chinese research centers. He reportedly published scientific articles and submitted patents in association with this foreign actor rather than with Hydro-Quebec. It is alleged that he obtained this information to benefit the People's Republic of China to the detriment of Canada's economic interests. Wang faces charges including fraud, breach of trust by a public officer, and using a computer without authorization. He is also charged with espionage for obtaining trade secrets. Authorities say it's the first time that charge has been laid in Canada. Law enforcement officials began investigating Wang in August this year after a complaint was made by his employer, Hydro-Quebec, which is a public utility company. The company Hydro-Quebec is one of the largest power utilities in Canada, and it's also a leader of clean energy. And despite the rest of the world mostly moving on from coronavirus lockdowns, China has continued to enforce its strict zero-COVID restrictions in many areas of the country, and the severity of the lockdowns is resulting in conflict. Here's the story. As COVID infections continue to rise in China, Chinese Communist Party officials are threatened with punishment if they don't have their area under control. The tight restrictions have sparked clashes between residents and local officials. In a video from November 7th posted by a resident from Linyi in China's Shandong province, local COVID enforcers are seen dragging locals over the pavement before hitting them. Some officers in black suits are seen kicking a person in the head. Another woman was thrown to the ground. 
and in Hunan province, video shows an armed police vehicle with the logo of Jujo Special Police patrolling the streets. The loudspeaker says armed patrols are now being carried out in key areas of Yutong Street. It says citizens are required to strictly abide by prevention regulations to not go out or gather together, and that those who do not obey orders will be dealt with severely. The long lockdowns are driving local citizens crazy. Many lack food and supplies. Several videos circulating online show residents trying to break out from the lockdown barrier. But some can only cry for help. A video of an elderly man kneeling for help in Guangzhou went viral. Locals said the elderly man was begging the staff to save his grandson who has a fever, but no one is there to help. Some people recorded a video of the scene and uploaded it online, but were threatened by police to delete it. Local residents say similar clashes continue. And in Xuchang city of Hunan province, a video shows a local citizen complaining to a local government official that he hasn't been able to eat for two days. The city has been under lockdown for 28 days. The man in the video says, what will you do if I starve to death? And the official replied, if you starve to death, I will sign your death certificate. At the end of the video, the hungry man was beaten. The Communist Party's new top leadership body reaffirmed Beijing's zero-COVID policy last week on state-run media, saying that epidemic prevention measures must not be relaxed. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky makes a triumphant visit to the newly recaptured city of Kherson, hailing the Russian withdrawal as the beginning of the end of the war. And a growing number of Germans are taking classes to learn what to do if they find themselves in a blackout. The prospect of the lights going out has become a real threat. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Both Russia and Ukraine have committed abuses against prisoners of war. That's according to the UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine. Since April, the team has interviewed more than 100 prisoners of war from both sides. The vast majority of Ukrainians held by Russian forces reported being mistreated. Torture and ill treatment were not only used to coerce prisoners of war to give military information or statements about alleged crimes. They were, they were interviewees told us, used on a daily basis to intimidate and humiliate them. Prisoners of war described being beaten, including with batons and wooden hammers, kicked and given electric shocks with tasers and military phones known as a tapic. On the Ukrainian side, Wagner said there were credible allegations of executions of Russian prisoners. Some Russians also reported poor transit conditions and potential beatings. In comparing the scale of abuse on both sides, Wagner described Russian mistreatment as quite systematic, while Ukraine's was not. She said most of Kyiv's abuses were limited to three detention centers and were more common in the early stages of capture. Previously, Kyiv said it would investigate violations in the treatment of war prisoners, but Wagner said no progress has been made so far. Russia denies all abuses. A memorial service for Jonathan Sung was held on Monday in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. The 25-year-old Taiwanese military volunteer died while fighting alongside Ukrainian servicemen against Russian forces. Sung's mother was among those attending the service and shed tears throughout the ceremony. Local volunteers holding Ukrainian and Taiwanese flags were seen among people who came to commemorate the fallen soldier. Media reported that Sung died on November 2nd while performing a combat mission in the eastern Luhansk region where fierce fighting between Ukrainian and Russian forces took place. According to media reports, Sung traveled to Ukraine in June and then joined the Carpathian Sich Battalion and Infantry Unit. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the southern city of Kherson to celebrate its recapture from Russian forces after months of Russian control. The Ukrainian counteroffensive that forced Russia to retreat from the provincial capital last week was one of Ukraine's biggest military successes. But NATO's chief warned against underestimating Moscow. Here are the details. Ukraine's president made a surprise visit to the newly liberated city of Kherson on Monday. Zelensky called the withdrawal of Russian troops the beginning of the end of the war. 
You see our strong army, we are step by step coming uh, to, our, to our country, to all the temporary occupied territories. And uh, of course it's, it's a pity, but it's a long way, difficult way, because this, this war to the best heroes of our country. The retaking is seen as one of Ukraine's biggest successes. It served another blow to the Kremlin and could become a springboard for further advances into occupied territory. Zelensky walked the streets of Kherson and awarded medals to soldiers. With winter approaching, one Ukrainian official described the situation in Kherson as a humanitarian catastrophe. Residents are living without heat, water and electricity and are short of food and medicine. But one resident said he is ready to suffer as long as his city belongs to Ukraine. Of course, we would like everything to get back to normal so that we have water, electricity and internet and that my child goes back to school. But anyway, it is better now than before, even without electricity, water and internet. Some residents are filling bottles with water from the river. During a visit to The Hague on Monday, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg said the Russian withdrawal shows the importance of NATO's continued support to Ukraine. But he warned against underestimating Moscow's strength. The Russian armed forces retain significant capabilities, as well as a large number of troops. The coming months will be difficult. Putin's aim is to leave Ukraine cold and dark this winter. So we must stay the course. He said it's up to Ukraine to decide what terms are acceptable for negotiations to bring an end to the war. A growing number of Germans are looking for advice about a real-life blackout. They're enrolling in courses to learn how to act if they find themselves plunged into darkness. And today's Andrew Thomas has more. The prospect of the lights going out in Germany has become a real threat. The current energy crisis and the reliance on Russian gas are catching up with Europe's biggest economy. A German aid and welfare organization offers free courses on how to carry on in the darkness. If the electricity goes out, then absolutely nothing works anymore. And we need to understand what nothing working really means, because this ranges from calling emergency services to lights going out on the streets, and that can mean that it is really pitch black outside. And then it is also pitch black inside, and a lot of things don't work anymore. Simple tasks like cooking a meal, staying hydrated, or ringing a neighbor's doorbell become major challenges. Birgit Eberlin talks her students through the basics at a charity in southeast Berlin. She hits the lights and conducts part of the lesson by flashlight. It is difficult to imagine how many things are affected. And many people come to us and say, yes, we hadn't thought about it being that bad. But this is all true and we have to think about all the aspects and how we could cope with the situation and what I could do about it. Germany's National Network Agency has warned of possible gas rationing this winter. That's after Russian energy imports to Germany plunged following the invasion of Ukraine. Three generations ago, people knew what being without electricity was like. Today, we realized that we can barely function without electricity. So you can see how quickly things develop and change. And without electricity, things pretty much come to a standstill. We won't die from it, of course, but life, daily life, comes to a standstill. But gas storages are almost full, and an unusually warm fall has helped with efforts to save on heating. Time will tell if that's enough to help Germany avoid blackouts. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Staying in Europe, Slovenia just elected a prominent lawyer as the next president. Slovenia is the birthplace of former First Lady Melania Trump. The incoming president has represented her as her lawyer before. I was her attorney at law at the times when, you know, there were some uh, nasty rumors appearing in Slovenian media. And after that, it was distributed basically all around the globe through UK to United States. Natasa Piers Musar says Melania Trump contacted her to protect her interests in copyright and other cases. 
Musar won the runoff election on Sunday, receiving around 54% of the votes. She defeated Slovenia's conservative former foreign minister. Her victory is a boost to the country's left-wing coalition, which also controls the country's parliament. Slovenia is a member of the European Union and has a population of around 2 million. It gained independence when Yugoslavia broke up in 1991. The president in Slovenia is the head of state, but the role is largely ceremonial. Two women tried to smuggle cocaine in their hair extensions. They were detained in Colombian airports with nearly two kilos of the drug, according to the Colombian Ministry of Defense. The women were both headed to Madrid, Spain, but from two different airports. They were detained when a body scan showed foreign objects hidden in their plumped hairstyles. Footage from the Colombian police showed an airport officer removing the tubes from the hair extensions and opening one of them to test its contents. And coming up, after four years of research, a German museum displays Cypher Machine 41 in Munich. The device was the successor of the Enigma machine. And researchers in Greece study thousands of Ottoman-era manuscripts. The oldest date back to the late 14th century. Stay tuned for what the documents reveal and more when we return. Welcome back. The Deutsches Museum now has a special cipher machine on display in Munich. The device was the successor of the Enigma machine. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. Researchers from the Deutsche Museum have been looking into Fritz Menser for four years. Menser was the man behind the machine. He, he was absolutely charming. I had a very good childhood. Um, I, I just would like to put my arms around him. Now they've created a film and exhibition to showcase their findings on the cryptologist. Menser's family knew nothing about the role he played in the Nazis' war effort. Overwhelmed. I, I just cannot, and particularly after I'd lost him 17 years ago, you know, and he has never spoken about it. He has never spoken about it. Um, it's, it's difficult to describe. He got me reading. We did stuff and built stuff together, and at first I was surprised. But now I am really proud, and it has brought him back alive again. While the machine is a reminder of the horrors of the Nazi regime in World War II, it's also valuable to the history of cryptology. Museum cryptology curators like Karula Dalka are excited about the new discoveries. We are very excited about the fact that there are several inventions. Fritz Menzer did not just come up with this machine, he developed other machines. And he also worked on cryptoanalysis machines to crack the codes of other countries. There has been no research on that whatsoever, and that is what we are so excited about. In 2017, amateur treasure hunters found the device in a forest near the south of Munich. At first, they thought it was a typewriter. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Deep inside a medieval monastery in Greece, researchers are studying thousands of Ottoman-era manuscripts. The libraries were established more than a millennium ago. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on these centuries-old works. The manuscripts are in several languages, including Greek, Russian, and Romanian. Many have been extensively studied, but not the Ottoman-Turkish documents. There are approximately 1,300 original Byzantine documents. Many don't exist anywhere else. Here we have the most ancient Ottoman documents before the fall of Constantinople, which were kept in Mount Athos, monasteries from the end of the 14th century and the beginning of the 15th. The most ancient Ottoman documents are here. They're the products of the Ottoman Empire that ruled northern Greece from the late 14th century until the early 20th century. A Byzantine scholar says the oldest works date to around 1375. There's roughly 25,000 documents all told. What is strange is that the sultans kept Mount Athos as the last remnant of Byzantium, semi-independent and didn't touch it. They didn't even keep troops here. At the very most, they would have a local representative who probably stayed at the administrative center and sipped tea. But military intervention, this kind of thing did not exist. 
A monk who is helping with the research carefully takes out some of the more rare documents. These include ornate sultan's decrees, deeds of ownership, and court decisions. The manuscripts tell a story of Ottoman rulers preserving the community's autonomy and protecting it from external interference. The sultan's edicts we saw in the tower, the Hasid documents, the court decisions of the Ottoman Empire, show that the monks' small democracy was able to gain the respect of all conquering powers in the region. And that is because Mount Athos was seen as a cradle of peace, culture, nurturing civilizations, universal values, where peoples and civilizations coexisted peacefully. For roughly the first two centuries of Ottoman rule, no effort was made to impose Islamic law on Mount Athos or nearby parts of northern Greece. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Over to Christmas Island, where red crabs have begun their annual migration. Some roads are closed to allow the crustaceans to cross the Australian islands safely. Footage shared by Parks Australia showed thousands of the red crabs crossing streets and climbing bridges. Millions of red crabs emerge from the center of the island for their annual journey to the sea to spawn. After mating, the male crabs journey back to the jungle first. The females stay behind in the burrows for about two weeks to lay eggs. Each female crab can produce up to 100,000 eggs and deposits them into the ocean. And still to come, chocolate lovers headed to a famous castle near Paris over the weekend for a chocolate fair. Chocolate lovers headed to the famous Fontainebleau Castle near Paris over the weekend. A chocolate fair brought together pastry chefs, gourmets, and even chocolate sculptures. Entity's France correspondent David Vives was there. According to some chefs, chocolate is perfect to warm people's hearts. Before becoming a common ingredient in candies, pastries, and desserts of all kinds, chocolate was reserved for the top elite, notably the French court. Historical documents show the consumption of cocoa in Europe began in 1544. That was precisely the golden age at the Fontainebleau Castle near Paris, says the castle's pastry chef Frédéric Castle. I would like to remind you that it was Christopher Columbus who brought the first cocoa beans to Europe. The chocolate was brought to royal court. The chocolate was crushed and then mixed with milk to make hot chocolate, like Marie Antoinette used to consume, for example. Imperial Chocolate was the title for the fifth edition of a chocolate fair that attracted chocolate makers, pastry chefs and gourmets. The fair included chocolate-making demonstrations, tasting and the sale of chocolates made by the best in France, as well as a cake contest. The contest winner says, making chocolate cake is about bringing together a variety of flavors to highlight the chocolate. It's a chestnut mousse with glazed chestnuts and blueberries hazelnut praline crunch, meringue, and chocolate bisque. My family and friends usually ask me to make chocolate cake, and when I am invited, I am always asked to bring the dessert. Chocolate pastry is a formal course in French culinary schools. Chef Stéphane Monin manages an 18-teacher team at a local high school. He showed some of his students' creations. Here we have pieces that were made by children, by our students, over several days and they made and assembled the piece on Thursday, so it took them two days. You have several kinds of chocolate, chocolate created with a mold, by hand, and sculpted. In the castle's corridor, marble statues had to share the space with their chocolate counterparts. Just as the marble statues, the chocolate ones will never be eaten. They will eventually melt or break over time. At this level, for me, it's really an artistic piece. It's a huge job where all the scales have to be put one by one on the dragon. So it's really a beautiful work. And here, it's like a work of art, actually. Except that this one, it's eatable. But you don't really want to eat it. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Can toxic relationships trigger cancer? Mind and body are inseparable, especially when it comes to our relationships. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. When it comes to curing cancer, we focus a lot on diet, therapies, and natural treatments. But there's one area that doesn't get a lot of attention, the state of our relationships. 
Research is proving that our social relationships directly influence our physical health. This can be for better or for worse. Toxic relationships don't just affect our self-esteem, but they can also kill us. The UCLA's School of Medicine conducted some research. They discovered that negative social interactions are linked to increased inflammation. That's a known root cause of a range of illnesses. In the study, researchers monitored a group of 122 healthy men and women. They tracked the stressful events and emotions as portrayed in their diaries. They compared these incidents to the results of a cheek swab. Those who were stressed out before the swab were more at risk. They had a higher number of the proteins produced by the body that creates the conditions for an increased risk of disease. Their findings indicated that those who are more socially integrated live longer. They are also less likely to experience specific disease outcomes. Interestingly, it's not only our current relationships that can be destructive. Past childhood experiences may also play a factor in the development of disease. Family environments that are cold and conflict-ridden are problematic, according to researchers. They were associated with elevated levels of C-reactive protein, CRP, in adulthood. CRP is a byproduct of IL-6 and a known diagnostic marker of cancer. Researchers define this chronic relationship stress as being characterized by conflict, mistrust, and instability. Based on research, it's better to surround yourself with positive and like-minded people. Maybe the impetus that changes your body's chemical reactions. Former world number one in men's tennis Novak Djokovic has been granted a visa to play in the Australian Open this January. That's after his deportation saga there last time. The Guardian Australia and Australian state broadcaster ABC reported the news of Djokovic's visa approval. Last year, the Serbian tennis player was deported from Australia in the lead-up to the Grand Slam tournament in January after he declined to be vaccinated. Authorities also banned him from the country until 2025, but ABC said it confirmed the country's immigration minister overturned the ban and chose to allow Djokovic to compete. A spokesperson for Australia's immigration ministry declined to comment on the reports. In July, Australia scrapped a rule that required international travelers to declare their COVID vaccination status, and Djokovic said in October that he received positive signs about the status of efforts to overturn his ban. And if you have little ones around, turn down the volume. The post office is looking for volunteers to answer letters to Santa. Once verified, these volunteers can look through letters children have written to Santa. When they find one that strikes their fancy, they purchase a gift for the writer and send it to them anonymously. The program has existed for more than 100 years. Anyone interested must register on Operation Santa's website and go through an identity verification process. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.